0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, let's get started. Um, we've got some heavy treading to do today as we look at Ephesians 1. And I, um, I uh, as I was going over this this week, I thought, you know, Andrew, you've just you've got to pick up the pace on this, brother. Like, you can't, and, uh, and then this lesson got us right back to where we were. Uh, we're not picking up the pace, uh, just because there's so much to unpack. And I would encourage you to uh, read ahead, and as I'm not really biting off a lot in, um, uh, in size, I'm biting off a lot in content, I'd encourage you to read ahead. Uh, so we're actually going to remain in Chapter 1, uh, 3 through 14, next week, And I'd encourage you to read ahead and bring your questions. Uh, But let's go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we do pray that even now as we come into Your Word, that it would be to the praise of Your glory. And our eyes might be open to your graciousness and your plan and your purpose for us. Lord, that you would cast away cobwebs and darkness. And Lord, that your light would be shed abroad in our understanding of what you would have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, does anyone want to teach this? Anybody? Just kidding. Uh, No, it's great. In fact, I mean, this is a really glorious passage. Uh, You hear repeated phrases all the time, and someone rightly said that this is actually better sung than said. It's better sung than read. It's a a doxology is what it is, and and it is a song of praise that Paul is singing uh, about the work of God in our salvation. And so, this really, Paul is laying out here in 3 through 14 the basis of Christian salvation. The eternal purpose of God, which he is fulfilling through his son Jesus Christ, and working out and in and through the church, which is his new society. And you notice he has lots of repeated phrases to the praise of his glorious grace also notice how often he uses words like plan and purpose. If you want to know significance and purpose, it's to be found in Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to get across here. That God has a plan and a purpose for you that was before even the foundation of the world. And so this little passage here, It's glorious. It's deeper than words. And it sings of the glory of God's salvation revealed to us. And even Paul gets caught up in his own praise. One commentator said, Paul launches into a majestic contempt for grammar and analysis. He just goes. And if you've ever been a reader on Sunday, have you ever gotten to one of those passages where you're like, man, my man needs to know how to use a comma or a semicolon, or something, and this is one of those passages. Paul just sort of pours it all out. He's singing to the Lord, and yet it's still an orderly construction, and it can be broken down into three parts. Overall, it is to the praise of the glory of God, this salvation that we have wrought through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you notice it's Trinitarian, He talks about the threefold work of the Godhead and what He did in our salvation. So verses 3 through 6 are about the electing and predestining work of the Father. Verses 7 through 12 sings of the redeeming work of the Son. And 13 and 14, the sealing and guaranteeing Work of God, the Holy Spirit. So he's breaking down and talking about the role of the Godhead in our salvation. And this whole plan is devised by God. It is procured. It's planned. Let me start again. The whole plan is devised. Do you ever write stuff down you're like, what does that say? I do it all the time. It was like I actually have lived out an episode of Seinfeld where I woke up in the middle of the night and thought that God gave me a word and I wrote it down on my bedside table. And the next morning, I'm like, what is that? And I even I got Lauren to look at it. I was like, I don't know. It's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery like Ephesians 1. Okay, so the whole plan is devised by God the Father. It's procured and purchased by God the Son. And it's sealed and guaranteed to us by God the Holy Spirit now i want us to be very careful about dividing up that work so when people say well uh, god is our create god the father is our creator jesus the son is our redeemer and the holy spirit is our sustainer that's true to an extent but the godhead is not divided off right they're one being and so all of them share in the one work of salvation that is ours But the main thing I want us to get across this morning is the foundation of our salvation in the electing and predestining work of God the Father. Are you ready? Because it is for this that Paul praises God. How many of you all have ever approached the subject of predestination or election and said, praise God well here's what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul doesn't begin with humanity and our need. But he begins with God and God's plan. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. What Paul is saying, and you can't possibly avoid it if you're, le- if you're uh, laying a biblical foundation, is that my salvation has its foundation not in my choosing, not in my choosing God, but in God's choosing me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul's overwhelmed by the glorious message of God intentionally in plan and purpose, choosing him and choosing you and me. But there's a distinction to be made between the two words that Paul uses in verses four and five election, that is God's choosing, and predestination. There are two different emphases on the same term. I'm, I'm sorry, the same truth election. Election is God's own personal choosing of a people in the same way that a parent would adopt a child or a bridegroom his bride. It's God setting His love on an individual which Paul says is the foundation of our salvation. That's what election is. It's God's active choosing and setting His love on a people or on a person and saying, you're now mine. Predestination refers more to the plan that God has in choosing us, the destiny that He has for us. Foundational, and yet they are the cause of much headache and heartache, even amongst Christians. And so it would be important to remind ourselves of a few few things as we begin to think on this. One, The New Testament doctrines of election and predestination, which we read plainly here in Ephesians 1, are not the invention of a 16th century reformer like John Calvin or John Knox, nor are they an idea cooked up by men at all. The doctrines of election and predestination are not the product of human speculation They're not the outcome, but they are the outcome of divine revelation. And so we can't even say, okay, well, if it's not Knox and it's not Calvin, well, then it's Paul. Paul comes up with this stuff. This is where we get this. You know, I wish we could just stick to the simple teaching of Jesus, but we're going to get to Jesus in a minute. But in the Old Testament, we see this worked out from cover to cover. God chose a people for Himself, not because of who they were, but because God loved them. You see that time and time. Why did God choose Israel? He tells us, actually. Because they were a great and mighty nation. They were no people. They didn't even have a land. So why did He choose Israel? because he loved them. They didn't bring anything to the table. God, in his mercy, he just loved them. And the Old Testament is time and time again about God's people rebelling against him, turning their back on him. But because his love is set upon him, he never lets them go. I chose you. What a remarkable thing. Of all the nations that he could have chosen, I think objectively you could say in the ancient world, he picked the worst. And they demonstrated that, right? Wandering in the wilderness. There he is, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they're like, man, I miss cucumbers. This is crazy. Crazy talk. He delivered them through the Red Sea. Oh, that it would be better that we were back in slavery in Egypt. If I were God, I would have said, I'm moving on, right? We're through. I once broke up with a girl because I thought she wore too much brown. I mean, I'm done. You can have your meat pots, you can have all that stuff and go back to Egypt. Um, there were other reasons, but the brown kind of put me over the edge. So the Old Testament is all about election. It's all about a choosing of God's people. But what about Jesus? Well, do you remember in John 15 where he says to his disciples, you did not choose me, I have chosen you. And this is election put in its simplest form. You did not choose me, I have chosen you. Now, it's uh, both negative and positive, but it's not that God peered into the future Because this is a misunderstanding that often happens. It's not that God peered into the future and chose those He knew would choose Him. It is actually the opposite. He chose us before the foundation of the world, we read here. The response of our hearts is the outcome and result of that glorious truth. Now, of course, there are problems and there are benefits. To this doctrine of predestination and election. Most of us, we try to avoid this conversation at all costs. And normally, if we talk about it, uh, well, it's confusing. Uh, it can be frightening. Uh, we feel like we're in way over our heads. Um, it's, we feel like maybe we're speculating. Uh, but whatever it is, uh, do you hear how Paul's talking about it? How is he talking about it? Man, he is over the moon. He's like, this is the greatest thing I've heard in my life. And we're like, I don't want to talk about it. So, if we don't at least try to grapple with the idea, we're robbing ourselves of a blessing. We're robbing ourselves to understand what it means to have lives that are to the praise of his glory. Now, here are some problems, as I see it, and I've struggled with this uh, my entire Christian life. Problem one, election and predestination can be disturbing because it downplays human responsibility. So you can easily take this, and Matthew Delaney, are you here, Matthew, or are you sewing somebody up in the ER this morning? Okay, so Matthew Delaney brought this up a couple weeks ago uh, well, probably months, but it feels like weeks, uh, about if if you believe in election and predestination, doesn't that lead to a sort of fatalism? You know, well, uh, you don't need to, uh, it's just kind of the way that it is. Uh, God's chosen you. Uh, he's predestined you, and so that's that. You know, sort of like the, Presby- and, 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 and the Presbyterians get a bad rap on this, by the way. Everyone thinks that only Presbyterians believe this, but if you read the articles of religion, we believe it too. And so, but I mean, the old joke about, what did the Presbyterians say when he fell down the steps? Glad I got that one over with. Um, yeah, church jokes. Anyway... But what does the Bible teach? The Bible actually teaches predestination and election, and it also teaches what? Human responsibility. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal and I will forgive them. That sounds like human responsibility, doesn't it? Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. And I will refresh you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So the Bible holds up human responsibility as a reality. But it also holds up God's election. And it's not a paradox. A paradox can be solved. It eventually can get to a place where you can figure it out. But this is one of those moments where it's called an antinomy. Have you ever heard that word? It's when two ideas, which seem wholly contradictory to one another, are held in tension at the same time, both being true. And that's what the Bible does. On the one hand, it talks about God's sovereignty and His electing and predestining work. I've got my... Y'all have heard about my Aunt Molly from Scotland. I've got her voice in my head. She would say predestining. So I've got, if I say it, that's why. God's electing and predestining work. And then you also have the call of God on on your life to repent and believe the gospel. But the Bible also teaches that the only free will is that exercised by God. He alone is free. So uh, I'll give you a biblical example of this. So here we have uh, in chapter 1, verse 4, you're chosen before the foundation of the world. But in John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, both things are being taught here. If this confuses you, it's because it's confusing. God in His omniscience, who devised the plan of salvation, in the counsel of His own will, and who creates us, will reveal things to us we will not understand, and yet will understand it better by and by, that there will come a day when not only will we, will, we will fully know Him as we are fully known. But for the time being, we have to say, yes, Lord, because at the end of the day, yes, election and predestination, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, God will hold each and every single one of us responsible for rejecting His Christ. That will be our judgment. So that's one problem that I've sorted out. Two, another problem is one of fairness or justice. Now, uh, I, uh, I understand this acutely, but the, the line of reasoning uh, it goes like this, well, I just think that this whole thing is unfair, that God would pass over some and choose others. Well, now, thankfully, the Bible talks about this exactly. So in Romans chapter 9, verse four, beginning with verse 14, I'll read for us, but this is a good thing for you to look back on. He's talking about the same exact question, but election and predestination seems terribly unfair. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul is actually addressing this very question about fairness, About justice. But you see what he's saying here in Romans chapter 9 is that actually this is not a justice issue. When we say, But God, it's unfair, you're being unjust, do you know what God's response to that is? Is to ask us the question Do you really want justice from me? Is that what you want? You want justice? Because guess what happens? We're all on the chopping block. I mean, I have to. My daughters are so concerned that their sisters or somebody, their sisters especially, but somebody's going to get away with something. I mean, they, they. I'm going to make them badges that just say "Spiritual Arm of the Sheriff's Department" and put them right there. And I tell them, you know, there's going to be a judgment day, and no one's getting away with anything. No one. And when we stand before that judgment seat, it's not justice that we ask for. It's what? Mercy. This is what Paul was talking about here in Romans chapter 9. It's mercy because what we deserve is judgment. But what we get in the Lord Jesus Christ is undeserved mercy. For the wages of sin is death. You know, I remember the first job I had, I was making minimum wage and I was working a I was 11 years old. I don't think that's legal, but anyway. I was working, um, and, um, and I got my paycheck, and I'm like, who's this FICA guy? Like, what, what, who's this FICA guy taking my money? And I actually went to the guy that employed me, and I was like, now, wait a minute. You said you'd pay me this much money, and yet I only ended up with this, and that's when I had a lesson in the need for tax reform uh, when I was 11 years old. You know, we're always concerned about our wages. I want what I deserve. I want what's coming to me. And God says, well, you got it. The wages of sin is death. At the end of the day, you get your paycheck and it says death. But the gift of God, the unmerited, undeserved gift of God is what? Eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's mercy, not judgment. And so when we come to God, we plead for mercy not justice. The mystery is not that God passes over some. The real mystery is that God chooses any of us. That's the remarkable thing about salvation. Problem three, the problem of evangelism. If God is chosen, what's the point in evangelizing anybody, telling people about our faith? But you see that God has not only chosen a people, He has chosen the means by which others might come to Him. And He does this in what the Bible calls a very foolish way, and that's called preaching. And so yes, God does his electing and predestining work, but the means by which he brings people to salvation is he uses us, jars of clay, cracked pots with the treasure of the gospel within us to share with other people and we become the way in which people have their eyes open to God's work in their lives. And so actually, predestination and election, I can't read that word again, sends Lens, thank you. Actually, predestination and election lends an authority and boldness to evangelism. Did you ever think about that? It's actually the opposite. It doesn't take away, it doesn't lead you to a sort of fatalism of, oh, well, you know, God's going to do it anyway, I don't need to do anything about it. Because Paul himself encountered this in Acts chapter 18. He's in Corinth and he's been preaching and it's coming to naught. He's discouraged He's beat down, and he's ready to quit. He's done with it. It's just not working. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Well, that's the key, isn't it? I have many in this city to my people. And you have taken on a responsibility that's not your own. You think that it's up to you to convince people to believe in me. But actually, your job is to faithfully preach the gospel and watch me change hearts. If you're not seeing results... And you're faithfully preaching the gospel and you have a faithful gospel ministry. You need to pray for patience to wait on God. J.C. Ryle, uh, Bishop Ryle said that preaching is the hand of God by which he reaches out to claim for himself those he has chosen from all eternity. You see, that's the great dynamic of preaching the gospel is the promise of a sovereign God who will use it to bring hearers to salvation. It's remarkable. I mean, in some ways, when I get up into the pulpit, the pressure's kind of off of me. I mean, I do get anxious because of, not because there are people but i get anxious and overwhelmed by the task that i have at hand and overwhelmed by the fact that that these words i'm preaching i'm preaching by god's grace to be the very oracles of god and that god would unstop hearts so that people can hear what he has to say and repent and turn to him and live but if you're sitting there thinking well you've gotten beyond the fatalism but you know i'm just not i'm not someone who really does a good job of articulating Uh, the gospel. I want to read to you uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's uh, uh, testimony about how he came to know the Lord. And these are his own words. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now. By the way, if you don't know who C.H. Spurgeon is, he was easily the greatest preacher uh, in the latter part of the 19th century, which is really saying something uh, in London, England. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God and sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. I don't know how they marketed that title, but there it is. In that cha- chapel, there might, have, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed in, I suppose. A poor man. A shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 45. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was I there was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, that does not make a great deal of effort. It's not lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. Yes, he said, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, there and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ." a tailor, shoemaker, doesn't even know his name. All he could say over and over again is, look unto me. He faithfully poured out the word like water, and by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, it was turned to wine. And this no-name bad preacher who could only fill 10 minutes at best, he, he unloaded all his material in 10 minutes. That's how God converted the greatest preacher of the 19th century. Look unto me. And so, like so many of us, God uses preaching and the sharing of the gospel from others, but it turns out it's a divine appointment. Ryle again said, it is this that puts marrow into the bones of evangelism. And so I pray that the practical effects of this truth finding its way into your heart. If you really start to think about what God's predestining and electing work means. So now I'm going to close. Those are some problems and now some encouragements. One, when you really come to grips with it, it produces in your life humility. Humility. Because you realize I bring nothing to the table. I can't even make the first step without God intervening first. This is when we sing Rock of Ages. We sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. All of our salvation is of God, and my pride is knocked out of me, and I become a debtor to mercy alone. So humility. Two, spiritual security. And we see this in 1.5. Uh, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Salvation is anchored in God's eternal purpose. Because there are times in our lives where we feel shaken and we don't feel like we can cling to the cross anymore. And we're about to let go. When I was a kid, I'll close with this story, and I'll get the last one real quick. When I was a kid, I was walking along uh, with my grandfather, and we had horse trails. And my grandfather would always do a real cute little thing. He'd always hold out two fingers for us as grandkids to hold on to. As you're walking along, and you trip over a root or a, a chip, you know what that means, uh, or a rock or something like that, well, every so often, we'd lose our grip, and, and we'd fall uh, flat on our face. And uh, my grandfather would always try to grab hold of us, and he'd say no, no and we'd say no, no, we want the, fingers. we want the two fingers. And then finally, in frustration, my grandfather would say, "This would work a whole lot easier if you just let me hold on to you." And of course, when my grandfather held on to me, what happened when I came to the root? When I came to the rock? Yeah, if I was holding on to him, I, I was probably going to fall every once in a while. But when he's holding on to me, what happens? You're steady. You move on. He leads you where He wants you to go. And so you have this spiritual security in the Lord Jesus Christ that He's holding on to us. I'm going to skip over Romans 8.28, but go back and read 8.28. That's a good one. Finally, three, it gives us ethical energy. You notice that in verse 14, He says, um, not, sorry, where is it? Uh, Four even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Why did God do all of this? Well, He chose us that we might be made like His Son, Jesus. God's will, rather than your will, becomes the controlling agent of your life. You feel directed by Him. You feel led by Him. You want to see your life conformed more To his will, and you look for his lead, knowing that if you're in charge, you're gonna stumble and fall and you're gonna go in the wrong direction. But you begin to give yourself over to him to do as he wishes and wills. Well, we're at the end of time. So I want you to ponder all of this, and we're gonna get back to it next (laughs) Sunday. And I know I've given you a lot, but please do think on this stuff. And i love some observations and questions next week, and I hope to do Jesus and the Holy Spirit next week, and then we can uh, move on. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.